0: Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 2022. There's now been a year of brutal war in Europe. In addition to the human tragedy, two other important parts of that war involve energy and sanctions. On energy, Russia weaponized natural gas sales to Europe. Russia cut off supplies going through its pipelines. The result was sharply higher prices That hurt the European economy and created serious political problems across Europe. On sanctions, the European Union, United States, United Kingdom, and other countries have all imposed wave after wave of export bans, import bans, financing bans, all seeking to target various parts of the Russian economy. But even before the war, energy supplies and sanctions had a long and controversial history, affecting the relationships among Russia the countries in Europe, and the United States. In this episode, we are going to tell the story of three Russian pipelines and the sanctions that arose during their construction. We will also describe the problems those sanctions caused for allies, as well as lessons from those sanctions for today. To do all that, I will be joined by a very special guest.
1: I'm Agathe de Marais, the Global Forecasting Director at the Economist Intelligence Unit.
0: Agathe Desmarais has had an amazing career. Before her current job, she worked for the French government in its treasury. She actually worked for the French treasury as a diplomat in Moscow when Europe and the United States were imposing sanctions on Russia for its annexation of Crimea. Agathe also has an incredible new book on U.S. sanctions called Backfire, some of which I have asked her to share with us today. Hi, Agathe. Hi, Chad. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade and policy. I'm your host, Chad Bound, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. Part 1, The Siberian Natural Gas Pipeline. The story of the Siberian natural gas pipeline begins in the early 1980s. In Europe, much like the United States, the economy was suffering. Europe faced high inflation after OPEC, the energy cartel, had cut global energy supplies in the 1970s. Many European economies were in recession, with lots of unemployed workers
1: this was after the two oil shocks of 1973 and 1979. So very high energy prices, few alternatives, Europe being reliant on the Middle East for energy. So I think there was this view in Europe that Europe needed to diversify away from the Middle East for its energy supplies. That's the first thing. The second thing is that Europe was in a recession and the economic conditions were terrible. There was very high unemployment. um, And so the The idea was that the pipeline could create lots of jobs in European companies that would be producing the steel, the pipe, the turbines and other components that the massive pipeline project would need.
0: For Europe, the alternative to oil from the Middle East was natural gas going through a pipeline that would start in Russia.
1: Picture Russia, picture the Arctic, and then picture the middle of nowhere, literally in the Arctic for Russia. That is where the pipeline starts from. It's called the Urengoy gas field. And so the pipeline was going from Urengoy, overland, throughout Russia, and then Ukraine, and then finally serve some Central and Eastern European countries, such as Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania, and then Western Europe. The capacity of the pipeline was about 32 billion cubic meters per year. That is huge. That is really huge. That would have been a lot of supply for the European economy, which at the time is worth remembering was much smaller. And and really the idea was to rely less on Middle Eastern energy to have a stable supply of energy.
0: This pipeline would be a major alternative source for Europe. Its economies needed to diversify their energy supplies away from OPEC and the volatile Middle East. The pipeline would go over land all the way from the Arctic in Russia and end up in Western Europe. Along the way, the pipeline would pass through the territory of the Soviet Republic of Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine was part of the USSR at the time. That part of the geographical pathway of the pipeline would turn out important for reasons later in the story. In the early 1980s, Europeans debated whether the pipeline project with the Soviet Union was a good idea.
1: Of course, there was the ideological problem of doing business with communist USSR and the communist regime in general. So some people from this ideological perspective weren't too keen on building the pipeline. but. The main argument of proponents of the pipeline was to diversify Europe's energy mix, and that was really appealing because it just makes sense to have different suppliers of energy. And the other thing is that at the time, the political mood in the European Union was all about détente, that is to say, a strategy to engage with Russia in the economic sphere to get some political concessions. And also, keep in mind, a socialist government was elected in France in 1981 with President François Mitterrand. So I would say that the climate was reasonably positive about building this pipeline, except for those who were really hardcore and against doing any business with Soviets.
0: In Europe's ally, the United States, the climate for building this pipeline with the communists in the Soviet Union was not positive.
1: The United States was, to say the least, not enthusiastic about the project. It didn't really share Europe's optimism and view that the project was a good one. Obviously, it was the Cold War at the time, and the US wasn't very keen um, to see Europe do business with communist Russia, Uh, and it was actually very worried to see Europe turn towards the USSR.
0: The Soviet Union and United States were deep into the Cold War that had now been ongoing for more than 30 years. In 1979, the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan. The Carter administration imposed an embargo on grain exports to Russia. The United States boycotted the Summer Olympics the Soviet Union was hosting in Moscow. The European Pipeline Project presented new concerns. The new Reagan administration worried. That the revenue the Soviets would earn from the Europeans buying their gas year after year would be used to fund the Russian military. It was also concerned that Europe would become dependent on the Soviet Union for its energy needs. The United States saw the Soviet Union as an even less reliable source for European energy needs than the OPEC countries that had caused global turmoil by restricting energy supplies in the 1970s. But there was more.
1: An additional argument from the US perspective was that there was a problem with the technology used by the pipeline. The idea from the US side was that the technology used to build the pipelines was dual use with civilian and military purposes. And so the US was very worried about the fact that Western countries would send Russia some technological secrets, essentially, that could be used for the advancement of the Russian military. To give two examples of this. There were French high-tech computers to control gas flows from French company Thomson CSF. And also there was some surveillance equipment um, to control that everything was going smoothly throughout the pipeline from French company Alcatel. And so the U.S. was saying, these are red flags. These are going to be used for military purposes. They will take the equipment out of the pipeline and do something else entirely with it. Just don't do that.
0: The European allies' counter-arguments kept coming back to the economics.
1: European companies had signed lots of contracts to build the pipeline and they really needed the money because they were in a recession. For instance, there were contracts for about 4 billion US dollars with the USSR to build the pipeline. There were 20 odd metallurgy and machinery firms involved in Europe for the construction of the parts of the pipeline. And in Germany alone, it was estimated that this would support the creation of 1,000 jobs. So from the European perspective, this was really a no-brainer. It had economic benefits and it would lead to more stable supply of energy.
0: The pipeline project started despite these disagreements between Europe and the United States.
1: The pipeline parts were being produced in 1981 and the US was really adamant that the pipeline couldn't be built. So it was a strange situation. European companies were manufacturing all the parts of the pipeline And at the same time, the U.S. was saying through diplomatic channels, don't do that. We're telling you not to do this.
0: And then something happened in Poland, one of the Soviet Union's satellite states, as part of the Warsaw Pact. Good evening. Poland's Solidarity Union claimed today that its workers were on strike in many mines and factories in defiance of the martial law imposed yesterday. But the extent of the stoppages could not be checked by Western newsmen hampered by the almost total shutdown of communications. Telephone, telex and telegraph services were cut yesterday when Poland's military leaders announced a state of emergency. Hundreds of leaders of the Solidarity Union were taken into custody.
1: Poland, December 1981, there were pro-democracy protests and these were crushed. With military force, dozens of protesters were killed, and Poland imposed a martial law in a huge, huge crackdown in late 1981. Washington argued that the crackdown on the pro-democracy protesters was ordered directly by Moscow and said, this is unacceptable and we're going to impose sanctions on the Soviet Union. And what were the sanctions? Essentially, they were sanctions against the pipeline project.
0: 30 years of Cold War meant the United States did not engage all that much economically with the Soviet Union. It had little direct leverage to impact the Russian economy. What the United States did have was the ability to tighten export controls on companies using American technology for that pipeline project.
1: There were a number of companies in Europe that were manufacturing the parts of the pipeline using American technology because there were some American companies involved in the project. So the U.S. took a decision. Essentially, it revoked the export licenses that allowed European companies to export components to the former Soviet Union that had been made using American technology. And the turbines, in particular, of the pipeline were made using U.S. technology.
0: The United States revoked export licenses for certain technologies being used to construct the pipeline. Allied governments in Europe were not happy.
1: Europeans were absolutely furious. They didn't know this was coming. They were only given five hours of notice. But they thought that not all was lost because in the beginning, the measures were not retractive. If the measures were not retractive, that would mean that European companies could just continue doing business with their Soviet counterparts for all of the contracts that had been signed previously. So everything was going to be more or less okay.
0: But that was not all. The Reagan administration also wanted Europe to impose its own penalties on the Soviet Union for the crackdown taking place in Poland. If they didn't do so, the U.S. threatened to make those U.S. export controls retroactive. That would impact contracts that those European companies had already signed on the Soviet pipeline project.
1: Europe really wasn't happy about that, but it was caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, it really wanted the pipeline project to proceed, and also it knew that it was really important for European companies. It had no intention to break relations with the USSR, and on the other hand, also it didn't want to have huge issues with the US. So it was really, really a complicated situation. What came out of it is that the EU announced a cut of 150 million US dollars in imports from the former USSR. This was a symbolic gesture. Even at that time, that wasn't a lot of money.
0: The Reagan administration was not impressed with the European announcement that it planned to restrict imports from the Soviet Union by only $150 million. At the same time, some in the United States were increasingly worried about starting a fight with Europe over the Soviet pipeline project. To be clear, there were serious debates within the Reagan administration about what to do. The declassified documents from internal National Security Council meetings from this period are fascinating. On one side was Secretary of State Alexander Haig. Haig led a group that wanted to back off. While they did not like Europe's pipeline project, they did not want it to jeopardize the transatlantic alliance. Haig did not want to push Europe too far. Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger led a more hawkish group on the other side. They wanted to threaten the Europeans with sanctions if the Soviet pipeline project continued. In June of 1982, things between the United States and its European allies came to a head.
1: The G7 summit in Versailles in France started negotiations again late at night, but both sides, the U.S. and the EU, just couldn't find an agreement. And so after the G7 summit in Versailles, the U.S. announced that the export controls would become retroactive and also target the European subsidiaries of U.S. firms.
0: The U.S. export control decision hurt not only European companies, but also the subsidiaries of American headquartered firms like General Electric, who were making things for the pipeline in Europe. Losing access to this American technology meant companies on the ground in Europe could no longer make all the stuff needed to complete their contracts to build the pipeline. This would have had big economic effects on jobs and those companies.
1: And of course, there were some very, very angry declarations from European capitals. For instance, the French Ministry for Foreign Affairs declared the US has just declared what amounts to economic warfare on her allies in Western Europe. That was pretty much the mood at the time in Europe. And Europe was really unhappy because, in parallel, the US had just dropped the grains embargo on the USSR because it hurt US farmers. So optics were disastrous.
0: To Europe, the United States was being hypocritical. In 1981, Reagan had dropped the grain embargo on the Soviets, recognizing that the trade restriction was causing economic pain to American farmers. With the new export controls impacting the pipeline, these trade restrictions were now hurting the European economy. And within the Reagan administration, divisions were now out in the open. Alexander Haig, the Secretary of State, resigned in part because he felt the United States should not be sanctioning its European allies. In the Allies, even British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, perhaps America's closest ally, called out the Reagan administration on the floor of Parliament by saying, quote, The question is whether one very powerful nation can prevent existing contracts from being fulfilled. I think it is wrong to do that, end quote. But Washington pushed ahead.
1: So that was really a tense standoff. And so what happened is that European countries, mostly led by Paris and London, had decided that they had a plan B. They ordered European firms to fulfill the contract with the former Soviet Union. Otherwise, if companies said that they wouldn't do business with the USSR, well. France and the U.K. threatened to requisition businesses complying with U.S. sanctions. That's actually pretty tough. Firms knew that they didn't have a choice. This really wasn't a choice. They restarted deliveries to the former Soviet Union for the spare parts of the pipeline.
0: Europe was now forcing its companies to disobey the American sanctions, threatening to nationalize them if the firms did not fulfill those Soviet pipeline contracts the Reagan administration did not back off. It ended up sanctioning a bunch of European companies who were following orders from their governments. This led to a diplomatic standoff between the Reagan administration and its European allies. Until finally, in November of 1982, the Reagan administration caved.
1: November 1982, after one year of very tense diplomatic relations, Reagan gave in. And he said, okay, just build your pipeline, do whatever you want. We are revoking the sanctions. Just do it, build your pipeline. You will regret it, of course, but just do it.
0: After a year of difficult transatlantic relations, the saga was finally over. The pipeline would be built after all. Stepping back from this first pipeline story, there are a lot of important takeaways.
1: The key lesson for the U.S. was probably that sanctions were not a magic bullet that could completely kill the pipeline project, which was certainly a realization that sanctions have a huge impact, but they can't do everything. So there was really a number of views emerging in the U.S. that this was at best an ineffective thing to do for the U.S. to try to kill the pipeline. It was clear the pipeline would be built, U.S. businesses would lose some money, about 6 billion U.S. dollars in today's money, and there would be a strain in transatlantic ties. Another aspect of this, and this is something that Thatcher repeatedly said, is that there was a lot of reputational damage for American firms because so many people will say there is no point in making a contract with the U.S. if at any time they can just cancel the contract.
0: The pipeline incident exposed the self-harm that U.S. sanctions can cause. The U.S. sanctions reduce the future credibility of American companies. Who would want to partner with them or become reliant on their technology if the U.S. government could suddenly just take that away? The experience also began to reveal the limits of U.S. sanctions, showing how foreign governments, in this case, European allies, could work around them when pushed too far. Finally, the U.S. sanctions had put a massive strain on the foundation of the transatlantic alliance. This point was also captured by an interesting book published in 1987.
1: Anthony Blinken, who would later become the US Secretary of State under the Biden administration, was at the time a young student at Columbia University. And he even wrote a book arguing that the US should preserve unity and transatlantic relations over the pipeline
0: For Europe, the pipeline incident revealed other important lessons. Those included new concerns about its own dependencies, not only with the Soviet Union, but also now with the United States.
1: The first one is that Europe was able to stand up to its interests and to tell the US, sorry, no, we're going to continue with the pipeline project. We understand your concerns. Thank you very much for raising them, but we will still go ahead. And the second lesson, was that European companies were still vulnerable to American export controls because they were using American technology. And a final lesson from the European perspective was that the US wasn't a lie, but it was also keen on imposing economic coercive measures on its own allies to advance what it sees as its interests.
0: Part two the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Within a decade, the Cold War was over. The Soviet Union dissolved in 1991. Remember that exclusive club of seven Western economies that had met in Versailles in June of 1982? Russia was asked to join, turning the G7 into the G8, or group of eight major economies. Things were not perfect. Twice, Russia went to war in Chechnya, and in 2008, Russia started fighting with Georgia. Nevertheless, the West was trying. The Obama administration announced a policy goal seeking to reset relations with Russia in 2010. And in 2012, the World Trade Organization even welcomed Russia as its 156th member country. Overall, this was a period of hope. improving economic and diplomatic relations between Russia and the West. It was also a period during which a second important pipeline was being built.
1: The Nord Stream 1 pipeline was completely different from the Siberian natural gas pipeline. Nord Stream 1 was going to go under sea, in the Baltic Sea, connecting Russia near St. Petersburg directly to Germany passing through the territorial waters of Russia, then Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and Germany. It was about 750 miles long, or 1,200 kilometers long, and 70% bigger than the Siberian natural gas pipeline. The capacity was 55 billion cubic meters, so really, really huge. It was really expensive, also, and a complicated project to build. Undersea is really tricky, and you have fairly extreme conditions with very fierce winter storms. So really quite a technological feat.
0: A technological feat, but relatively little drama. Sanctions were not part of the story this time around. It was a new world.
1: The initial idea to build the pipeline came in 1997. And it took 14 years for the pipeline to be completed and integrated in November 2011. By 2011, something that is really important to keep in mind is that times were completely different between Russia and Western countries. I was a diplomat in Russia at the time. I remember welcoming President François Hollande on a presidential visit, meeting Vladimir Putin, complete with dozens of French CEOs of big companies. Russia was an ally on the war against terror, exchanging intelligence with Western countries. You know, there were disagreements, of course, but times were completely different, especially for Europe. US-Russia relations were always a bit more strained, but relations between Europe and Russia were very decent. And actually there were a number of people in Europe saying, well, maybe we should be working with Russia. So completely different era.
0: Part 3, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The third pipeline in our story would ultimately come after Russia's popularity and engagement with the West had peaked. But first, fast forward to February 2014. February
1: 2014. Russia organizes the Sochi Olympics in the Caucasus region of southwest Russia. Huge success, lots of foreign delegations, huge platform for Russia to present itself as a developed country that is working in, in, hand in hand with Western countries. And at the same time, in parallel, things were not going very well in Ukraine, actually. The Ur- Ukrainian revolution started pretty much at around the same time. And Ukraine wanted to turn towards the European Union with an association agreement. For Moscow, this was completely unacceptable. And so Moscow did everything it could to prevent this from happening. Ukraine, from Moscow's perspective, was part of Russia's sphere of influence.
0: Ukraine had become independent when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991. But a Ukrainian political turn away from Russia? and toward Western Europe was too much for Russian President Vladimir Putin. In March of 2014, he decided to act. Russia has signed a treaty to incorporate Crimea into its territory, following a referendum in which residents of Ukraine's region overwhelmingly backed the move. President Vladimir Putin signed the document with Crimea's prime minister and parliament speaker. Putin has accused the West of encouraging unrest in Ukraine in order to break its historic ties with Russia and dismissed Western criticism of the Crimean vote as illegitimate.
1: Russia annexed Crimea, started to back separatist rebels in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. And this led to the imposition of the first Western sanctions against Russia in only a few weeks between the Sochi Olympics and the annexation of Crimea. Very, very fast unfolding events.
0: At the time, Agathe was still at the French embassy in Moscow, working for the French government. One day, she was in Sochi, helping celebrate Russia's Winter Olympics. The next, she was part of a team tasked with putting together sanctions against Russia for its actions in Ukraine.
1: I was told, Agathe, you're part of a sanctions task force. We're joining forces with the French Minister of Foreign Affairs and the French Treasury in Moscow, Paris, in close collaboration with Brussels and Washington and other Western allies. Most European sanctions-targeted individuals or companies linked to Russia's annexation of Crimea and the backing of separatist rebels in the Donbass region. Actually, it led to a lot of debates with the other side of the Atlantic, the U.S., who wanted to go bold and big and fast and strong from day one against Russia. To be honest, the 2014 sanctions were reasonably mild from the European perspective.
0: In the United States, the Obama administration took a different approach to sanctioning Russia in 2014.
1: The U.S. imposed sectoral sanctions that was a new concept against entire sectors of the russian economy mainly the financial sector russian banks the military sector um, and also the energy sector and these sanctions are really going to be the most effective against the russian energy sector sanctions on the russian energy sector make it very difficult for russian companies in the energy field to get access to financing and technology from Western countries. And for Russia, this is a huge problem because a number of Russian energy fields are coming to maturity. This means that the reserves are fast depleting. So Russia needs to develop new oil and gas fields. The reserves are mostly located in the Arctic. Very, very difficult and expensive to develop. And without Western technology, this will be impossible.
0: Despite the US and European sanctions, things then quieted down. Russia, for the most part, weathered the storm of the sanctions. It had annexed Crimea and was backing separatists in eastern Ukraine. And the world had mostly moved on. But then the announcement came of another gas pipeline.
1: In 2015, Gazprom, the Russian gas giant, and five European companies in the energy field, they announced the construction of Nord Stream 2, a gas pipeline that was essentially the same one as Nord Stream 1, doubling the capacity of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, using the same route under the Baltic Sea. It came with a huge price tag, 11 billion US dollars, paid mostly by Gazprom and then the five European partners.
0: The Nord Stream 2 pipeline would follow the same path through the Baltic Sea as Nord Stream One relatively non-controversial pipeline that had opened in 2011. Similar to the early 1980s, some of the European arguments in favor of the project were economic.
1: On paper, that was a good idea because Europe needed that energy. Especially in countries that are really gas dependent, such as Germany or Austria, for instance. The German economic model actually relies on cheap gas from Russia. And this was really important for the German manufacturing sector to have access to more gas supplies. Another argument was the Fukushima accident. It led Germany and other countries in Europe to decommission nuclear power plants, and at the time, especially in Germany, to replace them by coal power plants, highly polluting. So there was a need to replace those with other sources of cleaner energy.
0: After the Japanese nuclear accident in Fukushima, Europe faced political pressure to close its own nuclear reactors. To maintain energy supplies, Europe was increasingly burning dirty coal. Without more natural gas, European countries would struggle to meet their carbon emissions reductions to tackle climate change. At the same time, Other European environmental advocates came out against Nord Stream 2.
1: The environmental question was really huge. There were a lot of people, especially in Germany, asking whether it was a great idea to go for more gas, more Russian gas, at the time when the energy transition was supposedly a top policy priority. And also the pipeline was to be built undersea. So not too great for maritime ecosystems.
0: There was also European skepticism about building another pipeline with Russia because of what Russia had been doing in Ukraine.
1: There was definitely a lot of pushback in Europe against Nord Stream 2. I think this has sometimes been lost in the debate in America, but actually a lot of people in Europe were definitely against building Nord Stream 2. Partly because of ideological arguments saying that Russia is just annexed Crimea and has started to back separatist rebels in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. So is it really a great idea to increase our dependence on Russian gas and to do more business with Russia and to finance Russia's actions? At the time, already 40% of Europe's gas imports were coming from Russia. So the question of the dependency on Russia was really a huge one
0: there was a separate argument that building another Baltic Sea pipeline would further hurt Ukraine. The reason related to our story's first pipeline, the Siberian natural gas pipeline that had been built in the 1980s.
1: This one was a bit of a tricky one, but Ukraine used to receive money, about 3 billion US dollars per year from Russia for a transit of gas from Russia en route to Europe via Ukraine. A big worry at the time was that Russia would just stop sending gas via Ukraine. And so Ukraine would lose the 3 billion US dollars in transit fees. And actually that was really useful for Ukraine, who was already at war against Russia in the Donbass to finance its economy and its government expenses.
0: As part of its military conflict with Ukraine, Russia had been threatening not to pay those transit fees and to cut off supplies of that gas so building Nord Stream 2 would potentially hurt Ukraine by reducing its leverage over Russia's gas sales. From this perspective for Europe, it was also unclear how much additional net capacity Nord Stream 2 would bring online. For example, total gas supplies would not increase all that much if, after Nord Stream 2 was built, Russia's plan was to weaken Ukraine by reducing the flow of gas through the overland pipeline to Europe. On the other side of the Atlantic, The American response to the Nord Stream 2 announcement was not positive.
1: The U.S. response to Europe's plan to build Nord Stream 2 was essentially, haven't you learned the lesson that it's not a great idea to do more business with Russia? You realize that Russia has just annexed Crimea, is backing rebels in the Donbass region. Do you really want to finance that? That makes no sense. That was essentially the U.S. response, with a lot of ideological arguments against doing any business with the Kremlin. A lot of people at the time were calling the pipeline the Putin's pipeline. It was really personalized, as if Putin was going to receive the money himself in the Kremlin.
0: At the same time, Europeans were having a hard time reading the American signals. In part, this was because of U.S. policy. Remember, the U.S. had announced sanctions on the Russian energy sector. What was unclear was the Americans' seriousness at enforcing those sanctions.
1: A few months earlier, there was a story with Exxon that really got the attention of European capitals. In September 2014, that is to say, not too long after the annexation of Crimea, about six months afterwards, Exxon and Rosneft the state-owned oil giant in Russia, found a giant oil field in Russia that they planned to develop together. The oil field was called Pabieda, which means victory in Russian. And of course, sanctions in theory prohibited this project to happen between Exxon and Rosneft, but it took Exxon seven months to put its projects on hold. What was really grating from the perspective of European companies was that in similar situations, European companies were told to cancel their projects immediately. Exxon eventually got in trouble with OFAC, the US Treasury Agency in charge of designing and implementing sanctions. It got hit with a 2 million US dollar fine, which was a rounding error because Exxon's revenues in 2014 were $412 billion. But it nonetheless appealed and it won. It never paid a penny. And so from the European perspective, this really made it look like sanctions from the U.S. had double standards, with sanctions being much more stringent for foreign firms than for U.S. firms.
0: Then, in 2016, there was the ultimate level of confusion. Donald Trump was elected president of the United States.
1: European countries had no clue what to think. Because on the one hand, Trump had just been elected as president and he seemed to have a very good relationship with Putin. You know, they had summits together and seemed to be best friends. On the other hand, the US was still making noises, especially the US Congress, saying this pipeline is an absolute red flag, a no-go, and you will not be building it. We promise you, you will come under sanctions. This is not going to happen. So from the European side... No idea what to think.
0: As president, Donald Trump was confusing for a number of reasons. His first secretary of state was Rex Tillerson, who had been the CEO of Exxon, the giant oil company involved in that Russian project. Tillerson himself had well-known ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. But Trump fired Tillerson only one year into the job. On policy, Trump was turning out to be hardly a friendly ally. In June of 2018, Trump put tariffs on European exports of steel and aluminum to the United States, saying they were a threat to America's national security. In July of that year, at a NATO meeting, Trump threatened that the United States could, quote, go our own way, which some interpreted as withdrawing from the military alliance if European countries did not meet his demands to increase their military spending. Later in 2018, construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline started.
1: Starting in September 2018, the pipe laying starts undersea in the Baltic Sea. But a few months earlier, there had been a first alert about potential U.S. sanctions targeting the project. It was Congress that applied sanctions against Russia that could have derailed the construction of the pipeline But in the end, there was guidance from the State Department saying that this was not going to apply to projects that had already been approved.
0: Since the Europeans had already approved Nord Stream 2, it looked like the project could go ahead. But the US Congress getting involved here was also something new. Russia had become a bigger worry for the United States. Aside from its annexation of Crimea, Russia had also been accused of interfering in the 2016 U.S. election of Donald Trump. In part, this was Congress saying, despite President Trump's potential mixed feelings toward Vladimir Putin, we, Congress, want to send a clear message. We do not think Nord Stream 2 is a good idea.
1: So, the construction of the pipeline starts. The building of the pipeline proceeds super quickly. By end 2019, that is to say, essentially one year later, all the bits going through Russia, Finland, and Sweden were completed. That was really the vast majority of the pipeline. The noises coming from Russia were that the pipeline was going to be finished in 2020 and start operations then. That was really fast. Two years to build a pipeline and put it into operation.
0: Not so fast. In the final days of 2019, Congress imposed secondary sanctions on companies building the pipeline.
1: When the U.S. adopts secondary sanctions against a country, it essentially tells all companies around the world, American or foreign, that they are free to do business with, say, Russia. The U.S. says, be our guest. That's no problem. You want to do it? We don't have any issue. But just so you know, you will need to leave the American market, stop using the US dollar and won't have access to Western financial channels anymore. And so the US did exactly that. It imposed secondary sanctions on the project, And so that's, that was a huge threat. And the company called All Seas that was laying down the pipes under sea, it's a Swiss Dutch company. It completely pulled out of the project after only a few hours. They didn't want to take any risks, and they didn't want to fall under U.S. secondary sanctions.
0: Would the U.S. sanctions work? The new secondary sanctions meant the European companies were no longer willing to risk finishing up the pipeline. But the Russian government and Gazprom, the Russian gas company, had anticipated these sanctions and planned ahead. They had purchased to specialized ships, allowing Russia to do the remaining pipe laying itself.
1: It had boats, a vessel called the Akademik Chursky to lay the pipe. The only problem was that the Akademik Chursky was in Japan at the time, in the Sea of Okhotsk, that is far, far away. And so it just needed to take it to Germany, pretty much. That was a four month voyage because the ship just couldn't transit via the Suez Canal because it had a crane to build pipes undersea, and the crane couldn't fit under the bridge of the Suez Canal. The Russian Navy even escorted the vessel just to make sure everything was going to be okay. And in addition to the Academic Chorsky, Russia also had another vessel called the Fortuna that was going to build the pipeline undersea. So no problem anymore with sanctions. That was Russia's plan.
0: Russia had made the last phase of pipeline construction sanctions-proof. By buying its own ships. It didn't matter that US secondary sanctions took out the pipelaying ships from European companies. As one more attempt to stop the pipeline, Congress threatened to impose sanctions on German workers in the tiny port city of Mukran. These workers were providing pipes and other supplies to the Russian pipelaying ships.
1: That was a really bad idea because congressmen said they would impose crushing sanctions on port employees, German port employees, but MUCRAM in Germany wasn't exactly thriving. It was hit by high unemployment. People were raised there during communist times. This was former East Germany. And when the U.S. says we're going to impose sanctions against you and you're on the minimum wage, you don't really understand what is happening. German political parties went into complete overdrive, sending letters to the U.S. government asking how the U.S. would react if Germany were to impose sanctions on American port employees. So that was the Mukran saga. And the U.S. really shot itself in the foot in doing that. And that was really an example of U.S. sanctions being really unpopular abroad.
0: The United States made a few more attempts at sanctions, but to no effect. By the end, Russia did not even need the Mukron workers to finish completing the project. Despite lots of American sanctions and big diplomatic and public fights with military allies in Europe, just like the 1980s, another pipeline was going to be built. In November of 2020, Joe Biden was elected U.S. president.
1: Remember the book guy? The one who wrote a book to say that building the Siberian natural gas pipeline, that the US should prioritize relations with allies over killing the project? That guy, Anthony Blinken, became US Secretary of State. And the US knew, after four years of Trump, that improving ties with Europe from a very low base, a very bruised base, was really a top priority. So, four months into the Biden presidency, sanctions against Nord Stream 2 were lifted. Actually, Blinken made exactly the same argument as the one he had made in the book. Okay, Europe wants to make a mistake, let them do. We're not going to impose sanctions on them, that's their problem. And in September 2021, nine months after the inauguration of Joe Biden, the pipeline was finally completed.
0: Despite the pipeline being completed, Nord Stream 2 was never put into operation. It never supplied natural gas to Europe. In February of 2022, the actions of Russian President Vladimir Putin made sure of that.
1: February 24th, Russia invades Ukraine. And Germany decides that it is not possible to proceed with the Nord Stream 2 project anymore. So Germany puts an end to the Nord Stream 2 projects. And throughout the year 2022, Russia showed that the critics of the Nord Stream 2 projects were right. Russia didn't shy away from weaponizing energy, supplies and also energy infrastructure, for instance, in Ukraine, to advance its military interests.
0: To wrap up this episode, I wanted to look at the totality of these three events three different pipelines, lots and lots of US sanctions, and then Putin's war. One worry is if America's main reaction is, We told you so. We warned you that this would happen. I'm not sure how useful that is. Europe does not need to be reminded that it made a huge mistake. It is living with the consequences. The German government, has been upfront about its failures. Here is Georg Kukis, the state secretary of the German chancellery in Berlin at an Aspen Institute Germany event in February of 2023. Of course, we as Germany, having gone through one of the biggest mistakes, both in public policy but also private investment decisions on over-reliance on Russia as a source of energy and seeing the massive implication, adverse implications of that during the whole year of 2022, um, not only in terms of limiting the scope of our policymaking, but also economic cost to our society. Furthermore, America focusing on what others got wrong means the United States misses out on what it needs to learn from these pipelines and its increasing use of sanctions. I asked Agat what she thought were important lessons especially for the United States, from these three experiences.
1: Sanctions didn't stop Europe from building the pipeline. The pipeline was constructed. It is only when Europe decided that it should get rid of the pipeline on its own and that it was its own decision that this happened. And I think this is a big lesson for U.S. policymakers. That was a waste of time from the U.S. perspective. I mean, all the time in these meetings and all this acrimony for nothing, the pipelines got built. That's quite a waste of time. And reputational damage. A third lesson from the European perspective is that the US needs to engage allies. It probably shouldn't go with unilateral sanctions against allies because it is only fueling transatlantic tensions that in the end only benefit rogue countries such as Russia. And I would hope that there could be more room for discussions instead of punishment with US sanctions to discuss of the real issues such as Russia's behavior instead of arguing and bickering over a pipeline.
0: The Nord Stream 2 sanctions, even the ones applied to Russia, revealed further limits to the effectiveness of US sanctions when a country could anticipate that they were coming.
1: Russia had really planned ahead. Remember it bought the Academic Chorsky 3 years even before it started to build a pipeline, because it knew that the project would fall under US sanctions. And so it decided that if the fleet was completely Russian, if everything was Russian with strictly no ties to the US, then it would be completely shielded from US sanctions. And this is, by the way, exactly what Russia does these days to export oil under the radar using a ghost fleet of Russian tankers.
0: Our story of these pipelines is just one part of her amazing new book about sanctions. As my last question, I asked Agathe how sanctions and the world's response to U.S. sanctions especially were evolving.
1: Uh, Sanctions are important. We don't have anything better. They suck, but we have nothing better. You know, declarations, not great. Military interventions, really not great. We have nothing better but we need to make sure that we use them judiciously. Sanctions have a lot in common with antibiotics, when you think about it. If you overuse antibiotics, you get side effects and you get resistance. Of course, nobody is saying we should get rid of antibiotics. They are critically important, they save lives. It's really the same with sanctions. They are important, very important tool for US to advance its diplomatic interests. But if you overuse sanctions, well, you will get side effects and you will get sanctions resistance. And this is exactly what we're seeing emerge these days.
0: Agathe, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My last point, I wanted to highlight the timeliness of Agat's book. Some of its messages are subtle and yet also super important. It's also a really uncomfortable book to read today, in the midst of a war and a huge period of sanctions. The one big difference between America's pipeline sanctions and those being done today is that today's sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine are being imposed collectively by a huge group of countries. Not everyone is participating, of course. China, Turkey, and others are refusing to sanction Russia. But it is much better than the United States acting unilaterally. Today, we really do want these sanctions against Russia to work in helping to stop a brutal war. At the same time, there is a need to be realistic. We have to realize that sanctions are imperfect. Russia can sometimes work around them. We need to prepare for the fact that, even with the best intentions the sanctions will likely not work as quickly or as thoroughly as we would hope. It is just that there are no more attractive alternatives. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Agathe Desmarais at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Do check out her amazing new book titled Backfire, How Sanctions Reshape the World Against U.S. Interests. Thanks to Melina Cobb, our supervising producer, Thanks to Sarah too on digital. As always, thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter or Mastodon. We're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks.